This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. It's Derby Week in the Bluegrass, which is also a good time to celebrate all things Kentucky. People all over the world tune in to see the fastest two minutes in sports in Louisville. At our house, we try to celebrate with the quintessential Kentucky food, the hot brown. If you've never had one, I recommend it. You may want some mint for a julep as well. For dessert, Derby Pie is recommended, the official and trademarked version is made by the Kearns Bakery, but I've heard there are even homemade versions out there. I am pleased to report that the October trip to Genoa has been filled up, but with additional interest, we are opening up a second week for others who may want to go. This would be the week of October 29th through November 5th, and it will have the same itinerary, readings, and location. So if you've been on the fence or the initial dates didn't work for you, please do reach out at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. I can send you the necessary information. Please also consider supporting the Cultural Debris Patreon if you enjoy the podcast. Any amount helps. There's a link in show notes. If you could leave a five-star rating and review, it would be most appreciated. It would only take you a moment. A recent kind reviewer, Alan Groves Jr., wrote that cultural debris is, quote, a place to dwell on the permanent things. He continues, What better way to repent of driving my mechanical Jacobin than to tune into this podcast filled with poetry, place, and politics in the tradition of Russell Kirk? Alan is a gentleman and a scholar, and he has good tastes in people and ideas. Thank you very much, Alan Groves Jr., and you also have excellent taste in podcasts. Our poem is from a favorite of mine, Wendell Berry, and is one of his Sabbath poems, Poem 10, from 1979. Whatever is foreseen in joy must be lived out from day to day. Vision held open in the dark by our ten thousand days of work. Harvest will fill the barn. For that the hand must ache, the face must sweat. And yet no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace. That we may reap. Great work is done while we're asleep. When we work well, a Sabbath mood rests on our day and finds it good. This episode's guest is Anthony Amore. Anthony is a Boston-based New York Times bestselling author and art security expert. He is author most recently of The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. The True Story of Rose Dugdale. He also works as Director of Security and Chief Investigator at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, where he endeavors to recover the 13 works of art stolen from the gardener in a daring heist in 1990. Now join me as I talk with Anthony Amore. 
Moray. Welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you for having me, Alan. So how's life up in the Northeast right now? Um, I, I suppose, uh, suppose it's warming up even up there. Slightly. We've had uh, a lot of rain and a lot of raw weather. Um, uh, but today, for a change, is sunny and it looks like a nice one out there. All right. Very good. We're, uh, we're trying to warm up, although uh, we recently here in April just had uh, just had some snow over the weekend, which I wasn't real, real thrilled about. But uh, but it seems to be getting back to normal. The horses are, are running in Lexington. And so we're uh, all all is as it should be, I think, uh, at, at this point. Sounds beautiful. <laughs> you have written extensively on stolen art. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, how did you come to be interested in that and start writing about it? Well, I, uh, in 2005, I left uh, a government career. I had spent 15 years working in agencies, which are all now considered Homeland Security. Um, and I took a, a, a turn in my career path and decided to uh, join the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Um, they happened to be looking for a security director and an investigator, which is an unusual thing for a museum. Uh, I just happen to have the right background. You know, many people don't understand, and why should they, that uh, federal agents, uh, if, you're a, if you're an FBI agent, you don't know much about facility security. It's not what you do. And people who do facility security don't know much about investigations. I just happen to have a combination of both from my government career because I worked um, for a length of time with FAA security as a special agent, and then um, with the TSA after 9-11. So I just happened to have this combination of uh, skills uh, in doing investigations and in securing um, vulnerable institutions. And that's what the Gardner needed because in 1990, uh, the biggest property theft in the history of the world occurred at the Gardner Museum and it was still unsolved at that time. And I, I saw this as a really uh, great challenge. You know, I had been part of the leadership team that rebuilt security at Logan Airport after the biggest terrorist attack in American soil in history and, and had the opportunity to work at this, another, another institution that had been victimized. So I, I, uh, I jumped at it, but, um, you know, leaving, uh, essentially counterterrorism type work, um, anti-terrorism type work and going into investigating art theft is a, is a leap. Uh, so I had to get, oh, up I would imagine. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a totally different type of crime. Right. So, um, I had to study up really quickly on art theft and, uh, who, who does it, what becomes of the painting, why the paintings, why they do it. Um, and how these cases are usually solved. So I really jumped in uh, with both feet looking at uh, this crime. Um, from a data collection standpoint, frankly, I started by keeping this really big database of every art heist I could find with every little needling detail collected and found right off the bat, Alan, that art theft is a huge uh, problem. I mean, there are thousands of art heists that have occurred in say the last hundred years and in, in to the tune of many billions of dollars, many billions of dollars. So um, 
this research led me towards the books. Yeah, I you know, looking through your books and uh, reading what what you had to say about art theft, it really was, I guess, striking to me how how much art theft there is and has been. I mean, it's not something you hear about big heists at times, like the Gardner Museum. We had a uh, they made a movie about a heist, a uh, book heist, but it was the the Audubon uh, Birds of America. So mm-hmm. it was kind of an art heist at Transylvania University. They did the movie American Animals about that. Yeah. Uh, that was here in Lexington. Um, you know, you hear about these sometimes hit your radar, but really it's something that's that ha- that seemingly happens a lot. Happens a lot and people don't realize it because even though it happens a lot and gets headlines, it's not something that affects the average person's life, right? So if you read today about um, a random murder or some sort of violence, your instinct, uh, I know you and I are both fathers, um, especially with daughters, right? Your instinct is this feeling of protection. You know, how how can I protect my children, my family, if this happens here? It's personalized. But when you hear about a masterpiece being stolen, um, very few people, very few, have something like that in their home. So it doesn't resonate on that personal level. So because you don't internalize it as much, um, you don't realize how often it happens. Now, I should add that most art theft occurs at people's homes. Um, but of course, that is not, uh, these are not cases where, you know, someone has a Rembrandt in, on, on their wall at home and it, and it gets stolen. These are primarily in museums, but I think it's that lack of a personal connection for the most part that um, makes people ignorant to the fact that it happens so often. Right. I can see that. And, I, and also, I guess a, a lot of times these narratives are kind of are driven by media attention, things that the media isn't necessarily interested in on an ongoing basis. I mean, I suppose if, if the media decided that they wanted to start promoting, you know, this rash of art, of, of art heist that they could, that they could easily come up with the stories to do that. But that's not something that's just, it's not on their radar as far as that goes. It is in terms of Hollywood, not in terms of sure. music. Yeah. So Hollywood loves heists. Uh, people love watching heist movies. The biggest, uh, the most popular um, uh, film ever shown on Netflix was called, um, Uh, Red Notice, which, you know, is an action film, kind of silly, but it was about an art heist, an art thief. Um, People love this stuff, but the Hollywood version is so dramatically different from reality that I think that's another uh, reason people don't um, think of it as often. They see it as a Hollywood type thing. So you're saying that most thieves thieves aren't really like Thomas Crown or or anything like that. We don't have Pierce Brosnan... um... Uh, spiriting away the the valuable the valuable art from the museum with uh, a beautiful lady by his side. That's not the that's not the actual profile. I've yet to meet any anybody in this field that looks like either Pierce Brosnan or Rene Russo. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, that's that's strictly uh, the film world. But I, as I often say, the real cases. Um, are much more interesting. And, and I often compare them to these Coen brother films uh, rather than these action films. The, the stories are just mesmerizing, which has led me to write uh, a number of books on art crime. 
So yeah, that's so 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 less James Bond, more Cohen Brothers. That's probably uh, that's probably a good way of putting it. Precisely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things that that struck me, and and you've you've got, I guess, in your books, there are kind of two approaches to uh, nefarious goings on in the art world. One is the the heist or the theft of art, but then you also have a book about. Uh, art cons uh, the art of the con is the name of the book where uh, it's not necessarily theft people taking something from a museum or from a home but it's people who are um, forging faking uh, pieces of art or uh, running scams uh, related to art and so art seems to draw uh, a lot of uh, sort of questionable types I guess Absolutely. So my first book was about art theft, right? So I wrote this book called Stealing Rembrandts, and it was a number of case studies uh, of how using Rembrandt thefts as an example, because he's the most often stolen artist uh, per capita. Uh, you know, you look at the number of his body of work um, and fully examining that. And then because I really like to cover art crimes, um, I, I did the same treatment with uh, fakes and forgeries, frauds. Uh, with the art of the con, which, um, you know, again, it's one of these things that people, where people find art theft romantic because of the movies, people find art forgery um, as amusing or charming because you're, you're pulling the wool over someone's eyes. You don't, it doesn't necessarily, you know, there's no violence involved, generally speaking. Um, and there's some clever, uh, there's cleverness involved, although, um, again, the public's perception of how these things work is is pretty much different from the way they really work. No, I, I saw um, a quote from uh, I guess uh, from Thomas Hoving in uh, in the Art of the Con, who said that f- that as much as forty percent of all art in museums is either a faker, a faker or a forgery, and that that's really an astonishing number. Do you think that that's correct? I don't. I think that Thomas Hoving was trying to draw attention to the matter by greatly exaggerating it. I think that's probably true of um, the Hermitage, but uh, <laughs> I don't think that's true of your of most museums that you go into. I mean, museums. Um, you know, the one I work at has a set collection; it can't be changed. So we're we're very confident about the provenance for all of our pieces. Larger museums that have you know, 100,000 pieces in their storage and tens of thousands on the walls, um, they might have some pieces that uh, unknown to them are not what they're purported to be. Maybe maybe it's misattributed. Um, that's very common. Uh, and researchers find this. Uh, but in terms of, you know, it gives the, that quote gives the impression that when you go to, say, the Met, what you're looking at uh, you know, you could flip a coin as to whether what you're looking at on the wall is really by um, uh, Titian or if it's a forgery. And that's just not true. But I but I, I do appreciate the fact that he's brought attention to the matter. Yeah, I mean, that that I mean, it, it just on the face of it, you know, to a layman like me, that seems like a hard to believe number. I mean, I would think that I guess uh, at least I naively imagine <laughs> that there that there are tighter controls on that kind of thing within uh, some somewhere like the Met or uh, or a Gardner Museum, these sort of world class uh, institutions 
that they would have. Um, I mean, they would they would be interested in verifying that. Although, you know, as you described, there is also at times, particularly among individual collectors, a reluctance sometimes to have things verified because there's the risk that it won't be verified. You're right. And that's a lot of times that's at the root of the cases I wrote about in the art of the con, the book about forgeries and fakes. And that is this desire by collectors. And again, I'm talking about these major collectors, especially or, or, or collectors of major pieces, I should say this desire to have something that no one else has, which leads to this want to believe sort of, um, um, attitude and not, not wanting to know, because when you, when you get to the end of these stories in that book and you see people that have spent millions and millions of dollars on a painting that turns out to be a fake, um, your natural question, especially someone like me, who's an investigator, I, I think, you know, for, for thousands, they could have had this analyzed. They could have had the pigments analyzed. They could have had a professional, re, uh, provenance researcher look at this, um, to determine its authenticity. Uh, the, the interesting thing about these great forgeries and fakes is that, and that's, this is the, the, the central theme of my book is that it's the key to the successful forgery and fake con is not that the artist, the forger is so great and so incredibly talented. It's really that the con man is really adept at finding the right dupes and people who really want to believe that they've gotten something no one else can have. Because when you talk to the scientists who examine these paintings and expose them as frauds, you know, when I first set out writing this book, I asked the first group I talked to, I said, so was it really hard to determine this was fake? And I said, oh, no, not at all. It was pretty simple. So, um, <laughs> but, but again, it's this Hollywood impression that it's this incredible artist who's just not discovered. He's a, he's the next Rembrandt, but but he's unappreciated, and he paints these incredible works, and it's just simply not true. And, and it one of the pieces of evidence towards this, Alan, is that when you look at these big fraud cases, and I would encourage your your audience to do so, you'll see that it's usually like an abstract expressionist artist or an impressionist artist. And I'm not an artist myself. I don't know if you are, but um, if you said to me, "Listen, I need you to forge." a painting, you can either forge the Rape of Europa by Titian, which is this incredible <laughs> handwork, or Paint Splatters by Jackson Pollock. I might get neither right, but I know which one I'm going to try. Right. I, I think so. Well, um, I, I will say that the uh, the official stance of this podcast is sympathetic to that viewpoint. Um, <laughs> that uh, uh, I I can see uh, where where that would be. Uh, that would be the genre uh, targeted by uh, by those who are who are seeking to forge things, and uh, you know, I, I I guess I would also tend to think that a lot of the people who would be interested in buying that type of art might be more into the hype and less into the art. I suppose that's uh, that's from my uh, biased perspective on that. <laughs> but, well, there's some uh, evidence to back that up. I mean, you can I, in my research, I found that a lot of times these these paintings, these more modern paintings are bought by people just as investments. Sometimes the buyer never even sees it in person and it's put into storage and it's an investment. It's not for its aesthetic value. Um, you don't see that as much 
I don't have data on this. So I want to be careful. But uh, anecdotally, you don't see that as much. If someone buys a Rembrandt, um, they don't put it in storage. They they display it, you know, but uh, or you know, there's only 36 Vermeers. But if one was up for sale, um, I guarantee you that it would be on display. Right. They're not they're not going to hide that away. Uh you know, so I, I I got a copy of uh, of the art of the con and and I I picked up a used copy of it and uh, I thought you would appreciate this in the front uh, of the book when I opened opened the the front uh, cover there was a, pay, uh, a a post-it note from the previous owner and the post-it note says don't invest in expensive art exclamation point so so, so somebody has has taken has taken your uh, your book to heart and they're they're moving away from art as an investment oh i scared them too much I, I, <laughs> I i wish that sticky note had said um if you invest in expensive art spend the relatively few dollars to have a provenance reason. <laughs> um, just give it a stamp of approval for you. It's relatively, I, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I, um, Please. I do investigations into this stuff on the side. So in my, in my day job, I, I look for the stolen Gardner art, but I'm on the side. I do private investigative work about uh, often related to art crime. And in one major case, and I, there's an NDA, so I can't get into too many details, but in one, in one major case, I never even looked at the paintings in person. I just said, what's the story? Where did, where did the seller purport to have gotten these from? And by looking at that backstory, it was easy for me to prove that that wasn't the case. So once you're able to discount the provenance, you could discount the paintings relatively easily. Well, actually very easily in this case. So, um, you know, provenance researcher is worth uh, every penny if you're going to invest in art. Well, you know, that's one of the things you've alluded to, to that a moment ago in, in the art of the con, that, that it's more about the story. It's more about the flash. In, in other words, it's really kind of a, an exercise in misdirection. Your look, look at the seller, look at the seller's story, uh, and people want to be part of that. They want to believe that 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 he really does have something unique for them, and uh, and they don't they don't want to hear the details really. Yeah, they you know once they've heard for the, one of the, the biggest cases in modern in, in the most in, in recent years is. Uh, the fraud case out of the Nerdler Gallery in Manhattan, which was the oldest continuous running uh, art gallery in Manhattan, which is saying something. Um, and they're out of business now because of this major con that they were um, susceptible to. And that was these paintings that purportedly belonged to a Mr. X. Um, you know, you would, you would think that the, the gallery manager was very wealthy and esteemed person, Ann Friedman, would have um, been better attuned to sniffing out a fraud, but she wasn't. In fact, one of the one of the fraud paintings she hung in her own home, and the signature Pollock was misspelled. Um, oh, it really makes you wonder: uh, Did she know, or did she not know? I I personally believe it it falls into the category of I just really wanted to. Uh, from her perspective, just wanted to have something and make a splash that no one else could have. Because 
It's a successful gallery with an incredibly successful person. It could not have been a financial motive uh, in my estimation. Um, so these cases are just rife with, with people who, who want to want something special and suspend disbelief far too easily. Yeah, it seems like, you know, that sort of celebrity aspect of art collecting and art trading, which on the whole seems to be uh, more, I guess, more tilted towards modern art than it is, say, the old masters. Um, but it seems to um, seems to draw that kind of celebrity mindset, maybe that uh it's not, it's not, I don't want the art because I enjoy the art. I want the art because it is a showpiece that shows that I have art, I guess is what I'm trying to, it's, it's, it's a status uh, idea rather than an art appreciation idea. I agree with you. And this is my personal opinion. I don't want any of your listeners to think I'm speaking on behalf of my institution because I'm not in all of our art is classical art anyway, but my personal view is that there is this status attached to modern art. The values are ridiculously high. Um, and it also, and again, this is a strong bias. It also, you know, I look at some of these things and I'll be totally frank with you. I just don't get them. I don't get them. And uh, people that own them and appreciate them are able to have this sense that they get it. Um, they, you, know, you don't. And, um, Perhaps it's some sort of pseudo intellectualism. I don't know. And again, I'm being harsh. Uh, I can understand somebody buying a piece of modern art that they just really enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I don't mean to cast aspersions on them, but I think when you get to the celebrity level, and um, that's true. And if you if, if you read the art of the con, you'll see there's cases where celebrities are duped, and they're duped very often. There's Steve Martin in. Leonardo DiCaprio and Alec Baldwin and John McEnroe and Robert De Niro. The list is endless of celebrities who've been duped in the art they've purchased. So if so, if we're going to uh, if we're going to invest in art, we need to, we need to find someone who's uh, maybe not not quite um, at the at the height of uh, of maybe the. Uh, not the height of the contemporary art scene. We want somebody who's a little more obscure, perhaps, or uh, or at least harder to uh, harder to fake. What you want is um, what you want to do is hire a provenance researcher to look into where this painting really came from, um, and if it's an authentic painting, they'll be able to determine that. If it's if they can't tie it to ownership records and historical documents, then you just don't know for sure uh, what you're buying. What's uh, have have there been recent cases uh, that have come out with uh, with somebody being duped or conned in in uh, uh, you know they've, they've come out in the news constantly to the point where it's impossible to keep up with them. And when you get to the <laughs> end of the art of the con, when I finish the last chapter, um, I decide to write an epilogue, and in it, I. I said, you know what, these were all relatively con, uh, contemporary cases. And I said, well, what's going on right now as I sit here? Are there any in the news? And I list a few, uh, actually a good number of them that were happening just as I sat there since I started writing the book, new cases, and they're constantly happening. Um, I belong to a, uh, a 
subscriber network called the Museum Security Network that reports every night on the latest news and art crimes. It's 365 days a year, and there's always plenty of stories and many about fakes and forgeries. And um, if any of your listeners Google this, you're going to find stories from the last few months of people who've been uh, ripped off on high value art. So there's the con and then there's the theft. And so a lot, a lot of your work, uh, your writing work, and of course your professional uh, work is tied to uh, the theft, the heist of, of art, people uh, breaking in and stealing typically in some, in some way or other. And you've got listed three reasons for stealing art uh, in your book. Thieves believe they can sell them. Um, collateral in illicit trafficking and is some sort of bargaining chip. So uh, t- t- tell me about those. What uh, is, is, can people really sell stolen art because it would seem like it would be difficult? So, uh, well, let me say this. The, the, um, the impetus for virtually all art theft, when I say virtually all, so 99.9% of art theft involves the, the, the idea that you can, you're going to steal this high value item and sell it and make money. Um, now, can thieves actually do that? When you talk about masterpieces, the very simple answer is no, right? So I have to tell you as an aside for your podcast, there are lots of people who listen to every word I say and um, try to parse any mistake I might make. So let me be clear. (laughs) Yes, there are a handful, and I mean a literal handful of cases where people have stolen a masterpiece and sold it um, for far less than its value. So Two Van Goghs were stolen in 2002, and they were sold eventually to a member of the Camorra, the violent uh, Italian organized crime group. Uh, one of their leaders bought them. Um, I think it was $300,000. But these, these paintings are worth well over $30 million. So you cannot steal a high-value piece of art and sell it because the other 99.9% of the time, you get stuck with it. However... Um, you can sell things that are by lesser known artists because they're harder to track. So if you break into a a Met and you steal a painting from the wall, you're not going to be able to sell it. If you break into a gallery and you steal a Moreau lithograph, um, you probably will be able to sell that on eBay. But the difference is you're not going to get a heck of a lot of money. You're talking about a few thousand dollars for something like that, as opposed to these thieves who think, hey, if I steal a painting worth $50 million and the black market elicits 10%, I'm going to get $5 million. Well, that never happens because the paintings are too recognizable. They, they get too much attention in the media and no one is going to give you $5 million for something that can only get them in trouble. So you can't sell these high value masterpieces, but you can sell possibly something that maybe even something valuable like a Hudson River Valley painting. Um, You're not going to get as much for it as you think. Um, And eventually it's going to be discovered that it's stolen. Um, But in in the short term, you could probably sell it if you're looking for a quick drug money score, that sort of thing. I remember years ago watching the movie, The Freshman with Matthew Broderick, and he goes to the mobster's house and over the fireplace is, is the Mona Lisa. 
<laughs> and and of course the point is made that's that's actually the Mona Lisa. It's not a it's not a, a, a fake. So you you argue in your book that there really is no doctor no purchaser though that 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 is a myth. It doesn't exist. Yes, that's that, what you said is accurate. There there's no uh, you know billionaire out there who commissions some cat burglar to go steal this painting that he just has to have so he can enjoy his, uh, his, his brandy by the fireplace alone <laughs> in, uh, with the painting. That's just never been borne out by history ever. Well, that I, I feel like you're taking a lot of the romanticism out of this <laughs> for me. I, <laughs> I, I want, I want to believe it's out there somewhere, but, but one of the, uh, to focus in on on art theft and one of your books, particularly the stealing the stealing Rembrandt's book, is that Rembrandt is a is and has been for a century at least, uh, sort of the primary target, or at least as you said, per capita, uh, the primary target of art thieves. Why why does everybody pick on Rembrandt? Well, um, it's a simple answer, and uh, when you look at the top people, you see Rembrandt and Picasso and Warhol. And that is because the people who steal art are, again, they're not art experts. They're not particularly well-educated. They're your common thieves who steal everything. These are guys that steal for a living and commit crime for a living. And they just see art as a crime of opportunity. And what do they know, right? They know the big names because they know the big names equal value. So I often say, if you go to um, any high school in Kentucky, and go to the freshman class and say, how many of you have heard of Rembrandt? Like, you're going to get basically every hand is going to be raised. And that doesn't mean they can identify a Rembrandt or they can tell you a lot about him, but they've heard of Rembrandt. They know that's this famous painter, right? But if you go in and you say, how many of you have heard of Mark Rothko? I'd be surprised if any of the hands went up, right? Now they both have incredibly high value, but everyone knows Rembrandt. So if a thief and Rembrandt is in every major city, you got a great museum, right? So the, the, the paintings are out there. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows their high value. Um, they've been stolen off in the past. And you just know if you steal a Rembrandt, you know, that's just synonymous with stealing something incredibly valuable. In in your book on on uh, stealing Rembrandt, the one one of the chapters that caught my attention because it was semi local uh, was your your chapter on Snafu in Cincinnati, nineteen seventy three. Right. Cincinnati's an hour and fifteen minute drive from here, and mm-hmm. so I go up to the Cincinnati Art Museum all along. But this was actually at the Taft Museum. Yes, um, and uh, and there were two Rembrandt stolen there. Can you can you tell me about that theft? Well, it's, uh, it answers your last question really well. It was, um, you know, this uh, criminal who uh, worked with the fence pretty often. Uh, and, you know, a fence for, for your listeners, a person, it's an intermediary through whom you can steal, I'm sorry, sell stolen goods. And he worked with the fence often, and this fence had seen a news story about these Rembrandts, valuable Rembrandts, coming to the Taft House. And he told the thief about them. So the thief went and stole them. And um, figured, you know, I, I, I can, if, if I steal these, I can sell them through this fence. Uh, number one, he stole, one of the paintings he stole was the wrong, was the wrong painting. But um, 
when he went to the fence, the fence basically told him, what are you crazy? These things are <laughs> too valuable. I can't, I can't sell these. So he was stuck with them. And then the story about how they are recovered with this, uh, you know, I, I encourage your listeners to read it. And, um, Oh, it's a wild story. It is completely wild. And, uh, I'm thinking I, I may be coming to the Taft house to give a talk about this stuff in June. So, I'll keep your oh, eye. Very nice. Yeah, but it's it's well worth it. That one is the one that reminds me of Coen Brothers the most, Alan. That, that <laughs> the characters are so rich and and read out of the movies. Well, it it involved a local anchor man and uh, and a and a uh, real estate agent. It was it was some wild uh, it was some wild stuff. Yeah, that real estate agent had been arrested also for selling for stealing toothpaste and. Um, you know, a lot of small ticket items. This was a common crook. And uh, now he's a real estate agent, but he, he was a common crook at the time back in the 70s. And um, uh, and these are the people who steal paintings. You know, it's I hate to say it this way because I do museum security, but compared to other very high value items, art is relatively easy to steal. That doesn't mean it's easy to steal a painting, but it's relatively easy. And that is because if you go to a high-end jewelry store today, um, no matter what their security precautions are, when they take diamonds out of a case for you to look at, you accept them. You don't give it a second thought. If there's an armed guard standing five feet from you, you don't, it doesn't bother you. You know, if, if you have to be buzzed in and out of the place, that, that's par for the course. But when you go to a museum and you want to look at a painting that's worth a hundred times what those diamonds are worth, um, you can stand there for 10 minutes just staring at it and examining it without anybody saying a word to you. So, you know, uh, museums are about access as opposed to banks and jewelry stores. So that's that's what makes them a target for these thieves. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I do want to spend a little bit of time, too, on uh, on your book, um, The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, because it, it's it's such a bizarre, uh, fascinating tale. So the, the other two your other two books are, are, I guess, I would say, kind of episodic. They're focusing on different, uh, different situations, different crimes, uh, thefts. But this is is kind of a, uh, I guess, a, a theft biography, yes. uh, right? Of of Rose of Rose uh, Dugdale. So uh, tell tell me about her because she's she's another one of these kind of unbelievable figures uh, i mean you wouldn't really even think somebody like this exists or that that it would be a hollywood concoction you're you're exactly right now that you summed that up so perfectly the first two books were um entertaining and educational whereas this one is a biography and about a woman of her time but what led me to it is that i do a lot of speeches about art theft and art crime and inevitably over the years the question would come up um, has a woman ever stolen a masterpiece? And I would always say no, except for Rose Dugdale. And um, I am really attracted to outliers in this field because so many people fall perfectly under the normal curve um, that I'm attracted to the outliers. And she is the ultimate outlier because not only was she the only woman who did this, um, she stole an incredible uh pile of loot. I mean, she stole these 19 paintings from the Rustborough house. Her motive was drastically different than the average motive. Her motive had nothing to do with money. In fact, she was an, an heiress who gave away her fortune 
um, a British aristocrat who was a, um, a radical uh, socialist who um, decided to forsake her father's wealth and dedicate herself to the poor and then ultimately Irish republicanism. And um, while she was going through this, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, this uh, evolution, the, these two Irish Republican women led a bombing campaign in one day in England, the Price sisters, who were very famous in the Republican movement, um, and were jailed in Great Britain. And they immediately went on a hunger strike because they demanded to be jailed in Northern Ireland like other political prisoners traditionally had been. Um, the British government decided to treat them as straight criminals. They, um, this hunger strike was garnered major headlines around the world, actually. Um, they, it, was, it was, you know, the perfect storm for this sort of thing. These two attractive young women who they didn't fit the mold of, you know, hardened terrorists. Rose Dugdale decided she was going to steal these masterpieces to use them to, to um, force the British government to send these hunger strikers to, uh, to Northern Ireland to serve their sentences. And it's just this remarkable story of her life, uh, the crazy, frankly, crazy things she did for her cause. And I also make the case that these 19 paintings were not her first foray into art theft. She had pulled off a big heist of her father's stuff at, at their estate. And I argue circumstantially, but I think convincingly, that she also stole a Vermeer two months before her most famous heist uh, in England at the Kenwood House. So it's just an incredible story, and believe it or not, doesn't even end there. And I, I urge your your listeners to pick up a copy of the woman who stole Vermeer. Well, she she's really extraordinarily off profile. Not only is is she a woman, but she had a she had a PhD. Um, she, uh, as you mentioned, came from uh, from a from a very well to do and and even aristocratic family. She was presented before Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Part of the last class ever, too. I mean, 1958 was this famous debutante class in London because the Queen had announced this would be the last time debutantes would be presented in front of her. So it was like a specially esteemed uh, debutante class that she wanted no part of. And as she negotiated with her parents, who were aghast that she not participate. And um, it's just such a sign of the times. She What she negotiated was that if she did this, they would allow her to attend Oxford, um, which, you know, I could tell you if my daughters told me they wanted to attend Oxford, I would move Helen High Board. <laughs> um, this was a different time, and the parents acquiesced, and she went through the debutante class much to her uh, her consternation. She's still alive, correct? She is. She's uh, 81 now, or she'll be 81 this year. She's uh, in a wheelchair. She beat covid um, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, the book takes you on this journey with her where, you know, essentially she uh, was this British aristocrat who wanted really badly to be accepted by the IRA. Incredibly, uh, in incredible length she went to be accepted by the IRA. At the same time, uh, that contemporary of hers, Dolores Price and her sister Marion, were born into the IRA and um, 
I think if Rose Dugdale could have been anyone else, it would have been Dolores Price. Now, the irony is at the end of their lives, Rose Dugdale is completely accepted by the Republicans and Dolores Price uh, died completely dismayed by the Republic, uh, Republican movement because she was unhappy with the, the Good Friday Accords. She, she felt that she didn't do all she had done in her life for compromise. And um, so they ended up complete opposite. There was this intersection where they went the complete opposite ways. Um, and it's just this great irony at the end of the book. Well, it is it is fascinating as a as an outlier, and it's I guess it's it's amazing that that uh, that you were able to kind of be the first one to really focus in on her because it it is such an such an extraordinary tale uh, that I, I it, it's hard to imagine that that sort of thing could even be repeated by anybody. It's uh, I feel fortunate to have told her story. I, I miss writing it. It was just. Writing and researching something that no one else has told before is an especial gift, uh, an opportunity with found history like this. But I would say that um, she, uh, I think the book is probably going to be a, a, a streaming series and I think people will be really taken by it. But um, her, her life is extraordinary for the amount of activity she packed into say a 10 year period. Um, it's seminal. And, you know, people often say, well, she was just like, she was like the British version of Patricia Hearst, which is far from the truth. Patricia Hearst was kidnapped into doing what she did. She, um, then took part of the crimes cause she was infatuated with the man who was leading the, the SLA. And then when she was arrested, she argued that she was innocent. Rose Dugdale, on the other hand, dove headfirst into this, these conflicts against common society at the time. She was the leader. The men followed her, these men that were involved with her. And when she went to uh, trial, her probably her most famous quote was when she was asked how she uh, pled. She said, uh, um, incorruptibly guilty. <laughs> she uh, she didn't fight it at all. She was proud of what she had done and didn't seek her innocence. I think she sought prison as a a uh, badge of honor, proudly and incorruptibly guilty. Right, and she didn't really spend that long in prison. No, um, and when she, you, you know, I, I I don't want to tell the whole book because that sometimes that'll keep people from buying it. But for her, what happened when she, from the time she entered prison until the time she was released is worthy of a book in itself. In fact, many of the people in Ireland who remember her, remember her only for her time in prison and were surprised to find out about the heists. It's that, <laughs> it's crazy. Well, certainly, uh, certainly want to plug the book. This is the most recent uh, of your books. The Woman Who Stole Vermeer is the, is the name of it. Yes, yeah, I'm very, very, very pleased with the book and it, um, um, they got a lot of good press in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, and in other publications that um, that you know get get a lot of esteem for one one reason or another. Um, but uh, I'm I'm proud of the book, and um, it was a good opportunity to to write a biography. I really enjoyed writing writing history. Well, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about your day job. Uh, if we could squeeze some of that in, um, 
On March 18th, 1990, there was a fairly significant event related to the work you've done over the past several years. What what happened on that date? Uh, just after midnight, so at 1.24 in the morning on March 18, 1992, two men disguised as police, Boston police officers approached the side entrance, the employee entrance of the Gardner Museum and talked their way in, saying there was a disturbance in the compound that they got a report of one and the guard against policy let them in. And uh, once the two officers were granted access, it was a fait accompli. They were there for a theft. Um, they never had to even show guns. They, they easily subdued the guards who would just observe and report like uh, they, they were a little older than college students. They weren't there to fight. They weren't Navy SEALs. <laughs> they were... Right. You know, so they, they duct taped these guys' eyes and faces and they handcuffed them and locked them in the basement. And then the thieves went to the rest of the museum and stole 13 works of art, including three Rembrandts, a Vermeer, which is the most valuable stolen object in the world, the concert by Johannes Vermeer, um, five works by Degas, a Manet, a painting by Govert Flink, a Napoleonic finial and a Chinese beaker. And uh, they made off with these pieces. The art is valued at well over half a billion dollars. So it's the biggest property theft that's ever been committed in human history and worldwide. And um, sometimes people say it's the biggest American art heist. And I cringe because that really undersells it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the paintings are still all missing. None have been recovered. I have worked uh, as a partner to an FBI agent for the last 16 and a half years looking for them. Um, it's incredibly frustrating work, to be frank. I never would have thought that I'd, it would take this long. But stolen art is very difficult to find. It's, um, you know, a lot of times you, you, you liken art theft like this to a kidnapping. The difference is when you're looking for a person, that person eventually needs to see a doctor or imagine you're looking for a fugitive. That person has to get medicine. They have to get food. They have to, you know, see doctors when they get older. Paintings just sit there. They need nothing. You can hide them inside drywall. They just sit there. And so finding a missing object like that is incredibly hard. Um, and, uh, but we work at it every single day. I was on the phone with the FBI this morning before uh, we spoke. And I'll be on the phone with them this afternoon again. And it's an everyday job. And uh, God willing, we will recover them. People cast doubt because the paintings are have been gone for so long. They've been gone for almost exactly 32 years now. But uh, I'm a, a, a believing Christian. And if you don't mind me saying, it's um, one of the paintings that's stolen is Rembrandt's only seascape. This large five foot by four foot painting um, of the storm in the Sea of Galilee, just before Christ stills the waters. And that story in, in Matthew chapter eight is about faith and hope. And um, that's a motivator in this case. And I think, I think we'll get them. Well, and that's the painting uh, that I always keep in my mind too, even more so than the Vermeer, that this the, the Rembrandt's uh, Christ on the in the storm on the Sea of Galilee is is out there somewhere because it's an image I've seen a lot, and uh, I guess for a long time it didn't. I wasn't even aware that it was a, a missing 
a missing painting because it's, I guess it's such a ubiquitous image just in religious usage and so forth. Um, but, but it's just been gone for over 30 years. I would, I would say it was probably the most popular painting in Boston when it was stolen. Um, uh, Rembrandt painted himself on the boat. So there's Christ and the, the 12 disciples and Rembrandt looking right at you <laughs> in the boat. Well, if, if there's anything Rembrandt liked, it was a self-portrait. <laughs> That's for sure. And, <laughs> and uh, you have to, I, I think, I, I'd love to hear a psychologist talk about uh, the, the idea that he put himself amongst the apostles. That's um, an interesting uh, psychological uh, move. But it's really it's just breathtaking, dramatic painting. Uh, you can't really even put a price tag on it. You know, we talk about the value of the missing Godner art, but the fact is people call, uh, very often people refer to a painting as priceless. Well, that's not true. I mean, paintings can be sold and they have a price, but the paintings at the Godner Museum by, according to Mrs. Godner's will, can never be sold. They can't even be moved from the location she left them. They're the true definition of pricelessness. They, they forbid it by law to be sold. So, um, these things are just irreplaceable and we have empty frames in the spaces that they once hung, uh, as placeholders, uh, for the spot that they will return. The only spot in the world that they should be, which is on the walls of the Godner. Well, uh, of course the, the case has, has received, I guess, a, a little bit of a higher profile and probably, I guess, because of the, of the 30th anniversary uh, a couple of years ago, but there was a, there was a podcast uh, based out of Boston on it. And then there was a, a streaming series uh, on, I guess, was it Netflix? Um, yes. About, uh, about the, about the, the heist and, and the investigation and so forth. Do you think that those accurately uh, present the, the highest in the case, uh, were there, were there deficiencies in those? Well, I'll answer it this way. I've never watched or listened to them. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, I would say in terms of the, the, these productions, you know, my job, because it gets so much attention, has been so many documentaries and podcasts and such. It's been an eye opening experience for me as a consumer of media. I very rarely watch, uh, documentaries because I've learned uh, for instance, the Godner documentary, which again, I haven't seen uh, the, between the FBI agent and um, myself, we have a case file that's probably approaches 70,000 pages, um, none of which the producers of the documentary had access to. Um, neither I nor the FBI agent appeared in it. So anybody watching it should ask themselves, you know, what what is missing from this? And I will just tell you a heck of a lot. Um, so I, anytime I see a documentary, I, I watch it and ask myself, who's not appearing? Uh, I consume a lot of true crime podcasts and TV shows, but I always ask myself whenever you hear, well, the police didn't cooperate. Well, I got to tell you, the police know a heck of a lot more about this story than the podcaster does. <laughs> so you're not well now I've got, I've got to defend podcaster somewhere but no i'm <laughs> sure you're i'm sure you're right about well that. you're drastically different i mean you're talking to the person and interviewing them but when you're you know uh, i've also found documentaries begin with a premise before their investigation even begins right um sure. a lot of it is confirmation bias and 
I'm just not one to to enjoy these things. I understand that they have merit and people do enjoy them. And there are some that I watched. I saw a documentary um, on Netflix called um, Bobby Kennedy for President, which I think was well done. I've seen, there's one about art frauds called uh, Major Look, which is about that Nerdler case I mentioned. And I watched it because they spoke to Ann Friedman, the person who bought these fake paintings. And I wanted to see what she had to say. But I don't, uh, I don't recommend any of the media um, productions about the Godner just because I know there's so much we can't tell the public necessarily. Um, sure. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to tell the whole story, Alan, because there's so many confidences involved and there's so many people afraid for their, their lives um, because of the information, you know, people who stole these things were not good guys. And uh, um, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to tell the true story. Well, spending all of that time, um, and I and I suppose this is a question you, you can't necessarily fully know the answer to at this point, but I but I feel like I have to ask it. Do you feel like you're closer to recovering them than you were when you started? Yes, and um, part one is what I was just mentioning that we know so much. We've made great strides in it. Part two to that question is. When you're doing a case like this, you're you're looking for needles in a haystack. And the approach we've taken is to make that haystack as small as possible. So we follow every lead. We cover everything. Um, and the haystack is so much smaller. It's been such a long time. We've eliminated so many theories um, that as a result, we get far fewer tips because we've collected so many thousands. Um, but also uh, because we know that at the end of that haystack are 13 needles that we, we need to recover and we'll get there. So one of the, one of the statistics I learned from your books is that 80% of thefts have a, some sort of inside cooperation. Mm -hmm. Is that, do you think that that's the case with the, with the highest uh, at the Gardner museum? Well, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't say there were things that point to that. And um, I can understand why people would believe that, but we've never uh, been able to prove that there was an inside component um, conclusively, but everything is still being examined. Well, when you um, when you do find them, I hope you give uh, cultural debris a call, and we'll uh, we can talk about it. Love to. Love to. <laughs> and I was I was very interested to hear that you may be uh, maybe near me in Cincinnati coming up this summer. So I'll have to uh, have to look at the schedule on that. I hope you're available. I hope I hope it all works out. Anthony Amore, I really appreciate you being on. And uh, the most recent of your books is The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, but also The Art of the Con and Stealing Rembrandts, all three uh, with, with interesting and, and often wild stories uh, connected to art. I can't thank you enough for having me on and for mentioning my books. And um, my website is anthonyamari.com, and I'm on Twitter along with you. Uh, and I, I welcome interaction from the public. All right. And I will uh, link those things in show notes. So good luck in your continued writing and your continued hunt. Do you, are you working on a, a new book? I am um, uh, looking at a book about um, uh, vandalism of art and this really striking story. But I'm involved in some political matters at the time, which is delaying my writing for a few months. Gotcha. Well, good luck on, uh, on political matters as well. Well wishes with that. And I uh, hope to talk to you again. 
Likewise, Alan, thank you very much.